On this episode of Progressive Palaver, the group discusses Pink Floyd's Umaguma. Welcome to Progressive Palaver, a group of lifelong friends and appreciators of music discussing the greatest progressive rock bands album by album. I'm Joe Beauclair, and on this episode of Progressive Palaver, I'm joined by my very good friends, Ken Gregory and Tom Corcoran, as we continue on in the Pink Floyd catalog covering Umaguma. Cool. All right, gentlemen, welcome to, uh, to Umaguma. This is this is interesting, and I'm going to apologize at the very top of the episode to anyone who loves this album because I don't get it. Not that I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm going to try to temper some of my reactions, but I, I really, really don't get it. So if you get this um, and, and this holds a very near and dear place in your heart. I respect your opinions. And if you can help me understand, which is, you know, one of the reasons why we, we made sure that Tom was available tonight because he had, you know, he was the first one in the Palaver group to offer some, some positive context here. So I'm, I'm very excited to get into this, not, not to get ahead of ourselves, um, because we have to, you know, kind of ease into this, like the pressure is on, but, but Tom, since since this is the first time you have had the opportunity to join us in this Pink Floyd segment, I want to give you the opportunity to give us a little bit of your Pink Floyd um, preamble. You know, maybe you can talk about some of your experiences, how you got into Floyd, what Floyd has meant to you in a general sense, before we get into the specifics of the latter half of 1969 and Umaguma. I'm really glad to be talking about Pink Floyd right now with you guys. Um, I'm glad I could do at least a few of these these episodes because for me, Pink Floyd was a big part of my growing up. It was a big part of all of our awakening into certainly Prague, but you know, music in general. Uh, you know, all of us being you know in a in a in a Prague band, we we really. Um, discovered Pink Floyd together. You know, we were really in um, that that same space. And I say that because I was a late bloomer with a lot of other stuff, like certainly the uh, Peter Gabriel era Genesis. I was a mm-hmm. late bloomer with, you know, a lot of the Yes catalog and things like that. But Pink Floyd, uh, it seems like, you know, we were all in that, in that same space. And we would, we would talk about the band, Growing up, when, when when we were in high school, we would talk about the concepts. We would play the the covers. You know, it, it it was it was really a part of our lives. So this this is this is awesome. So here we are talking about Amagama, and this has sort of a, a unique place in my Pink Floyd world because. I hadn't explored a lot of the earlier stuff, like more even Adam Hart Mother until until later, but I had uh, stumbled upon 
Amagama, you know, going back to the the earlier works of Pink Floyd, I had I had gone back and and listened to it when I was younger, and I always loved it. You know, I always knew okay, this is on a different level than the sort of big Floyd albums that we all know and love, but it's sort of there was a piece of it that that stuck with me, and I didn't know why until later in life when I was composing music for film and I was listening to a lot of compositions as well as writing compositions and I, in in a Christopher Columbus way, discovered Jerry Goldsmith who is a wonderful composer and uh, who, who composed a lot of classic films like The Omen, Planet of the Apes, a ton of Star Trek stuff. But in particular, The Omen and Planet of the Apes had a certain, a very distinct style to those scores. And I really took to those scores. There's an abrasiveness, especially in the percussion, and a sort of a a dramatic element to it that I've always always loved. And in preparing for for this episode, you know, going back to Amagama, I was listening to it and I was like, wow, this sounds like a lot like those scores. If you if you listen to this album, and even if you play a lot of the the score of Planet of the Apes or The Omen, you're like, wow, this is this is in that in that ballpark. Uh, you know, this is a Amagama is a film composer's album, if you will. And I was I I, I didn't put that together until until later. But uh, Jerry Goldsmith is incredible. If you listen to a lot of Jerry Goldsmith's earlier music, there's a distinct Pink Floyd influence there. And you know, Amagama came out even before these movies. So um, I, I would not be surprised. And I, I'll try to find some some interviews at, at some point and see who Jerry Goldsmith was inspired by. Uh, but I would I would bet that he was inspired by this album as as I was and as I continue to be. So I'm looking forward to talking about this. Wow, Tom, I had no idea about Jerry Goldsmith, but apparently he was doing five to ten soundtracks per year from the 60s through the 70s, 80s. And he blossomed again in the 90s. He did a. Star Trek Voyager and all these uh, things that I'm actually familiar with. The Mummy. Amazing. The Mummy? Oh, I love The Mummy. Yeah. <laughs> he's done he's done some some recent things, but and I'll I'll play this some I'm I'm really getting ahead of myself, but I'll I'll play some similarities between Umaguma and, you know, films like The Omen and Planet of the Apes. And things like that, and it's remarkable wow. how similar they are. Um, I'm not saying that one ripped off the other or anything like that. It's more of a, you know, paying homage to one of the others. More of a one was inspired by by the other, and there are some really great moments in in both. Because I listen to, I'm weird. I sort of scare my whole family. I'll I'll listen to the Omen soundtrack, which is just <laughs> a very bizarre thing to <laughs> listen to. Um, you know, it sort of scares the hell out of me uh, without even watching the, the movie. But, uh, you know, my kids won't even go into the studio if they hear certain things. They're like, oh, dad's listening to one of his weird soundtracks. <laughs> uh, so that's why I love this Pink Floyd album so much because, I mean, go, going through it, there are some very disturbing sounds 
that are made with instruments that cause a certain reaction. And um, if you're listening to it like you would want to be listening to the wall, you're, you're really not going to like it. But if you're listening to it on a, just a different level, I'm not saying better or worse or anything like that, but if, it's just on a, on a, if you're listening to it on a different level, you're appreciating it um, with sort of visuals attached to it. So uh, that's sort of where I come from with this album anyway. That was pretty deep, Tom. I just want to say that you left out one very fun excursion in your Pink Floyd origin story. Uh, when, when Paul came on board to talk about A Saucer Full of Secrets, he talked about covering some Pink Floyd music. And I just wanted to credit you. When, when Paul and I were playing uh, The Wall Parts 1 and 2 and Mother, you were absolutely on bass. Even when we had our full five-piece prog band, when we played, uh, was it um, Young Lust? You were absolutely in the band at the time. Yes. Yeah, so so, so we, we were not only um, uh, listeners, we were doing our best to recreate whatever we could at that time. Yeah, Pink Floyd was definitely a part of our Good times. growing up. It, it really was. It's amazing how profound these bands are to us, just our, our growing up, whether it's Rush or Pink Floyd or, I mean, all of the above that, that we talk about, they really go back, and it goes back to even the, the playing. You're right. You know, I think this is going to be one of those palavers where Joe doesn't talk that much, which is very unusual. No, well, allow me to give some uh, history, see if I can inspire you. An interesting Beatles album happened a year before Uma Guma, and it was a particular album that had, uh, I guess, two, two, two vinyl records with four sides. Mm. And, a single uh, color, maybe? Yeah. <laughs> and different band members got their own little sections. This, this was released in November of 1968. Uh, the Beatles album, also known as the White Album. And uh, that um, worked so well for the Beatles that Pink Floyd had to more or less copy it. So Uma Gumma features uh, solo efforts by uh, Wright, Mason, Waters, Gilmore. We'll talk about the, uh, I guess, you know, the isolation. They really didn't overlap as much as you might think that they would. It's interesting that these albums came out so close to one another. It's, it's amazing, even if you look back at the early Genesis albums in the late 60s, this band came out with this album, and at the same time, maybe it was, you know, an early Stones record or, you know, a Beatles or, or whatever, and, and, you, and you compare the two, um, it, it really sort of um, makes you step back a little bit, and this is definitely one of those. I love it. I mean, not as an album, but just as an art creation. It, it, it finally got through to me. On the first listen, I admit, Joe, I was in your camp, and I'm, I'm, I'm veering towards Tom's camp as, as I go along. And, and it's interesting, right, because this album came out, um, well, I guess we can go into the particulars and, and sort of set the stage there as my iPad keeps blinging at me. So if we talk about... Umaguma. It was released in November of 1969. It was um, produced by Pink Floyd. The they did the the live stuff, and Norman Smith is credited with producing the studio record. Um, we haven't talked yet about the the dual nature of this, and um, it was released on the 
label harvest. So when we talk about the the the, the live record, side one is Astronomy Domine with careful with that axe, Eugene. And then side two is set the controls for the heart of the sun and a saucer full of secrets. Now, record two, the studio album consists of Sisyphus parts one to four, um, Grand Chester Meadows, several species of small furry animals gathered together in a cave and grooving with a picked. And um, side four is the narrow way parts one through three and the Grand Vizier's garden party with uh, part one, the entrance, part two, entertainment, and part three, the exit. And while I didn't mention it in order, the uh, personnel are the same that we would have come to expect at this point with Dave Gilmore, Nick Mason, Roger Waters, and Richard Wright. And and I know we here at the Palaver have generally stayed away from live recordings of any nature. I did find... This is an interesting way to release an album, though, right? So you've got... You've got a studio album, which consists of four band members, each getting a half side of a record to do whatever the fuck they want to do. And then you package that with a live record with, you know, just the the four tracks on it as well. And it's interesting, Ken, you had pointed out that, you know, the White Album had this sort of let band members explore their space Um you know, in the context of a band album. And obviously, Yes is going to do this in the very near future with um, with Fragile. And it seemed to be that after three or four records, bands had to put out a, a live album for whatever reason in this time period. But, but here you've got Pink Floyd mashing those two things together all at once. And, you know, it's, that's, that in and of itself is a, is a really creative way to do it. So anyway, I know we don't generally talk about live stuff, but I, I do want to just kind of go through that very quickly. One of the things that really struck me, and, and I, I mentioned recently, I, I've, I've been listening to all sorts of Pink Floyd and, and I had forgotten, and I, I mentioned this on the text, that I had forgotten that on 1994's Pulse, they play Astronomy Domine. And so to be able to compare, like, one of the last Pink Floyd tours where they played that song mm. with this version from 1969, it it was really kind of fun to, to look at that and how, you know, the, the four of them played that song which obviously was written by Sid and everything else compared to, you know, the, the 1994, 93 version, um, you know, where they've got the whole stage full of a gazillion people, you know, playing the song. It's, it's just, for me, that was really, really fascinating to kind of look at, at the way they, they handled that. And, and I don't know, I, I read a little bit in the book about careful with that ax, Eugene. I, I don't have much to say about that, but I, I did also find, Set the controls interesting because, again, when we talked with Joe Cass about the Nick Mason show, mm-hmm. you know, he, he mentioned this specifically. And as we, we did, you know, Saucer Full of Secrets, it's it's pretty much a, a studio piece. And I was always curious how it translated live. And it's it's slightly different, but yet really enjoyable and still is very true to the recorded version. So, I, again, I found that to be somewhat interesting and then we had talked in the saucer full episode as well as last week when i found the 
the bit in Nick Mason's book about the song, A Saucer Full of Secrets. And, and we're kind of all over the place. Like we weren't really on board with, with A Saucer Full of Secrets. Nick Mason thought it was spectacular. I think this live version um, really comes across as a lot more coherent and maybe more of what Nick was describing than what the recorded version is. And I'm not exactly sure how that happens, but I, I just wanted to point that out. Wow. Wow, you dove in head first. Okay. <laughs> well, all right, let me throw in here. Are we gravitating towards the Sauce of the Secrets as, as, as one of our favorite songs or at least a surprise track on here? Yeah, definitely. I, I think for, for, for me, that, that definitely is the case. Okay, I, I attribute that to Gilmore because when we first reviewed this, I said it eventually comes around through all of the sound effects into a nice progression, but Richard Wright is alone. And clearly you have Waters like very deliberately laying down the bass line and Gilmore not just playing, but delightfully singing over top in this. So when I criticized A Saucer Full of Secrets in that previous episode uh, and said, you know, there could be more going on here, I had no idea that on Umaguma they would be doing it live, in fact, with the full band. It's one of the phenomenon of the modern age. Well, we recorded this, now we have to learn it. Right. <laughs> yeah, so I'll leave it there. I mean, that, that's, that's my thought on Saucer Full of Secrets. Cool. What and and quickly then? What did you think of um, set the controls for the heart of the sun? I mean, did that did that impact you in any way, shape, or form, or was it just? Eh? Uh, I think with all of these, astronomy, astronomy, particularly careful with that X Eugene and set the controls for the sun. I find them to be more sparse than I remembered. Uh, and even jazzier than I remembered. Uh, you know, careful with that axe just has a swing yeah. to it the whole time. And set the controls was, you know, we're not talking prog or metal here. We're still kind of in that psychedelia jazz world. But I do, I, I do dig it now, and 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 I like it live more than I do the initial. Version and I've done this before, and and I hate it when I do this. But I will, I will find a really great song, or at least a song worthy of prog, you know, legendary status, and and I will like bash the original version. I did that with Firth of Fifth from Genesis, and I <laughs> I love the song. I love the melody. It's just the original version is the template that makes greatness happen later. It's not necessarily the version and I, I i feel the same thing here okay so tom any thoughts on the live portion of this record at all i mean well i i agree with you guys a lot i mean i think saucer full of secrets it definitely comes into itself and and the band sort of finds it kind of like what, what, what ken was just saying and that's why i even brought up brave because i think that saucer full of secrets in this on on this album they sort of as a band discovered what it was a little bit later musically and uh, i actually like it a lot better so i'm i'm a i'm a big fan of the song on this album excellent so that then we can go into the the studio album now uh, 
again, when I started listening to this, and, and I'll point out, I believe I had Umagoma, I, I had purchased it on vinyl sometime last year. I don't exactly know when, but it, it's it's actually one of the first vinyl Floyd pickups that I, I had. I didn't really know what it was. Uh, I very quickly figured out that there was a live in a studio version uh, or album, and I'm like, oh, this is interesting. And I would put it on while I would, you know, be doing stuff around the house, and it, it yeah, I didn't really get it. And then I ended up going out and searching for a CD version so I could listen in the car, sort of, um, you know, more intensive on the way to and from work, because that's often a lot of the ways I uh, I prepare for these things. I didn't know about this individual, you know, composition thing. I didn't know that, you know, Roger Waters was being heavily impacted by some sound designer dude at this point. Um, and I, I just... I just didn't get it. I mean, it it's funny, Tom, when you talk about, you know, scoring and, and, and things like that. When Sisyphus opens, I swear to God, I feel like I'm watching Conan the Barbarian. <laughs> <laughs> and and it's it's kind of cool, right? It's it's got this it's got this sort of, you know, medieval, desolate kind of vibe to it, you know, and you're like, all right, yeah. And and that's all great and stuff. And then and then Richard Wright just kind of, you know, jumps the shark and and I don't know what the fuck he's doing on his piano, but it's it's just kind of cacophonous at, at that point. I'm like, that that's where it kind of falls apart for me. And it it, it never really kind of comes back um after that. So Well, it's so funny, Joe, that you say that about 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 Conan. Because one of the samples I have um, with Sisyphus, I have um, an episode of Star Trek where Kirk is fighting that like salamander monster, and it sounds—it's oh, yeah. like that sort of like deep instrument thing, and it's like, and it's like you know that sort of battle cry thing, and it's just—I mean, it's the same time period. I mean, literally the same time period. The original. Um, Star Trek was between you know, 66 and 69 and I mean it sounds like it could be you know you could just take Sisyphus 1 and just place it right into some of the uh, different Star Trek themes from the original series uh, now that's a little bit different from Conan but I, but it's similar in the fact that it's sort of like like the warrior thing going on. But so I definitely, yeah. I definitely hear you on that. So, I mean, for, for you guys though, I, I mean, is, do, and, and, and maybe I just don't know how to uh, approach this album. Right. Because with well, the exception of, of snippets here and there, there's nothing I can really grab onto. I can't, I can't like make sense of it. Right. I think Nick Mason said it when he, I have a quote here from something I found and he said, I thought it was a very good and interesting little exercise, the whole business of everyone doing a bit. I don't think that any of these guys, and actually, if you read what they think about this album, none of them particularly love it. Uh, they, they don't have a lot of great things to say about it. But I think they 
it was an exercise. I was kind of like, okay, you take a fourth, you take a fourth, you take a fourth, and you take a fourth. It is what it is. I mean, some of it is, as an album, yeah, it's fragmented, okay? It shows, and I think, you know, Paul even said a little bit of this in, in a text that it, it sort of shows where they're going to go. There's a, there's a, there's a nexus here. And there's a real ground zero that they they sort of build on from from this album. I think more than some of their other, really anything of that that they've done prior. So I, I don't know if you know. I think even Nick Mason would agree with you, Joe. I mean, he's like it's a little exercise. Mm. That's what they. <laughs> that's what he thinks it is. He thinks it's a little exercise. I don't know if we should all, um, you know, take it on the same level as the wall or something like that, because obviously it would be a failure in comparison. But uh, when you have that sort of openness, that willingness to to do something new and to experiment and to quote, quote unquote, do an exercise, I mean, that, that says something about where you're willing to take your music and, and, and how much you're willing to not sit on your laurels. So I, I think uh, it's just, Again, I mean, there's some things in here that you just can't listen to, you know, if you're just in a car, you can't listen from start to finish. You know, it's just, I'm not going to defend that. So, uh, but I think that if you just take what even what Nick Mason said, I think it's very successful. And I think it, it really shows that they are uh, all about visuals as much as the music, because, I mean, there are some things in here that, that, that that really highlight the visual aspect of things. All right, Tom, Tom well said. Um, Joe, I can't uh, take you on either. I'm in, I'm in the same camp as Tom. I'm, I'm not debating what you found here, but I'm just diving into the parts that I do like. There was a record review in Rolling Stone for A Saucer Full of Secrets in October 1968 uh where at the end of that review they addressed the uh the banal organ organ come religious chorus final one that realizes that pink floyd are firmly anchored in the diatonic world with any deviations from that norm a matter of effect rather than musical conviction so um what 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 the author is saying there uh the word diatonic is one that means the artist is sticking to a musical scale rigidly. And Pink Floyd, when they are, if you strip away the effect, it just reveals a band anchored into very simple musical scales. And I like the fact that shortly after this Rolling Stone review with the word diatonic, that Richard... Wright has the opportunity to perform his pieces on Umaguma, and he he goes off into this piece that violates all the modes of the time and, and, and goes into kind of whole tone areas and, and, and pure free jazz space with some passion, but but also with, with some attitude. Uh, and, 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 and I just like the fact that, you know, they volunteer, they, they violate not musical rules of, of, of scales and, and time signatures and whatnot. 
so I'm finding pleasure and it's some really geeky stuff, but I'm still finding pleasure. I'm just not, I'm just not having the, the, the listening experience that you are. And, you know, it, I, it's interesting, right? Because I'm not trying to draw as close a parallel as it's probably going to seem, but we have all experienced, you know, the early stages of songwriting and recording. And once you get, you know, into whatever sort of recording environment, there, there's always sort of naturally a period of playing around and seeing what you can do and seeing what, what comes out of that. We, we've all done it. Um, you know, and while we amongst ourselves maybe had shared some of it, I guess I'm just stunned that as their fourth album, Pink Floyd released a collection of what to me sounds like experimental noodling. In some ways, it's extraordinarily brave to do that. It may be extraordinarily pretentious. I don't know. Um, well, despite what we hear and despite, you know, stories of, of, of their lives or, you know, uh, narcotics or whatever else, um, <laughs> they, they were employed. They were on contract. They were working. And and the, the folks at EMI didn't screw around. Throughout this entire period, they were playing gigs. And then they would come back and do this. It, you know, if, if the work of art is is scattered and, and patchy, it's because it wasn't a contiguous session. They were all over the place. And they did Sid's first album. It, it, it was... Um, yeah, that's interesting that that Sid's album is in the middle of all of this. Very much in the middle of, uh, of all of this. And Sid was disappointed when they finally had to, to, to you know, mix Omegoma and play, and play shows. And then they came back and did more tracking for Sid. So there was a lot of pressure to work during this period. And... Uh, um, I don't know if, you know, if you, if, if, uh, I, I keep referring to the, the, the comfortably numb audio book that I'm enjoying quite so much. And, you know, despite what Sid went through, they say that, uh, you know, Roger Waters probably only did acid like twice in his life. No matter what it was that they did recreationally, they were on the road making money for, for EMI. And this, this was the first, Umagoma was the first commercial success for them. They were only breaking even up to this point. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, Ken, because we had talked about this in the first couple of episodes, right, that Pink Floyd hadn't earned their stripes, so to speak. And this is the period where they are playing constantly, crisscrossing the UK, you know, jaunting down to the continent and, you know, a couple trips to America. So they, they really are at this point sort of learning how to, you know, be a band and do all those things. So, you know, whereas in the beginning, maybe they they came into success without having worked for it. At this point, they are working for it. So that, that does become an important part of the story, obviously. The, this yeah. Will, this will probably be a, a good time to mention that, actually, you were both talking about Sid. Uh, Astronomy, the first song on here, is written by Sid Barrett. And I, I think... We don't talk about a lot of the drama behind, you know, the band a lot of times, but it, it's a, this is a weird album. The fact that 
they were sort of in the middle of their breakup with with Sid. I, apparently, they started recording this, and they couldn't finish it with Sid, but they used some of the songs. But I find Astronomy, the first song, oddly enough, one of the more palatable songs as a Pink Floyd song on on this album. And usually, you think of Sid as sort of like the, the far out aspect of <laughs> of of the uh, equation and when this album starts and astronomy you know st starts it's the least sort of film scoring song on the album and it sounds like okay this could be a pink an, er an earlier pink floyd song it sounds like that and goes off from there you know like it or hate it but um it's sort of interesting that that Sid Barrett is a part of this album in a in a in a sort of weird way. No, they're leading. Yeah, they're they're leading with the hit single to their best of the ability. <laughs> <laughs> oh heavens! Well, I think I covered Sisyphus, but do you guys have any thoughts on that? Um, in terms of just the the the, the odd nature of of hearing the the. It starts with very minor horror movie sounding synth, and then it goes into the, the spacey jazz piano, and then it becomes very percussive in a sound chaser kind of a way. And then I forget how it ends. It, it, uh, it's a very complex piece with lots of levels, but I, it, it, that entire journey, I, I take it, Joe, it's boring for you? Uh, like I said, it, it it starts out when I can kind of grab onto it, and then it gets kind of just like okay, what's the point? And, you know, at that point, I, I kind of check out a little bit. Mm, Tom, what did you what did you get out of it? Well, I, and I don't know if we want to go through this whole thing, but um, I had this whole thing I was going to do. I was going to play this, this game, and I was going to play samples of Sisyphus because it's all revolved around Sisyphus with... Um, Film, I'll do it. Film do scores it. of of the time. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, yeah, so yeah, yeah. you had me at the word game. I was like, yeah, yeah. So this is Tom Saucer full of shenanigans. This is the game. Okay, so I'm going to play a bit from Sisyphus, and then I'm going to play another score, and you have to guess what that other score is. Okay. Joe looks nervous. <laughs> I am. There's no. I'm terrible at games, but okay. So this is. This is the piece of Sisyphus. Okay. So you nice. have to guess what this what this is from. Tom, I mean, I, I don't know the difference between The Man from U.N.C.L.E. or The Planet Apes or 2001, A Space Odyssey. I, I mean, I, 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 you could play anything and I would 
and I and I and I would believe it, but 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 I have to. I'll just I'll just throw out a guess. Is that something to do with the Planet of the Apes? No, that was um, from Star Trek, the the original series. Really? Yeah. So, I, nice. I I think there's a lot of similarities there. I think there's a lot of similarities in the rhythm, in the percussion. Uh, I and it's the same period. I mean, you're, 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 we're, we're talking uh, 66 through 69, and anyway, uh, Star Trek. Um, and I, I think you could just pop in one, pop in something from Sisyphus into an episode of Star Trek, and bang, you would have something really great. And so that, that, that's what excites me. So that's why I'm hearing Sisyphus, and I, I'm doing that. I'm also hearing my, my um, Rottweilers banging around. Give me one second. <laughs> Well, I mean, had the Rottweilers been around in 1968, they would have appeared on the album because, you know, their their performance is is just as good as all this, if not better. So, so, Tom, I find it interesting. You had mentioned then that that Star Trek, the original series, ran from 66 to 69. So this stuff truly is contemporary. And one of the things that I've found most fascinating about this early portion of Pink Floyd is the 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 timeline, right? Because I I always it seems that everything that Pink Floyd did is actually earlier than I would have thought it was in relation to other things that could have influenced it. So Ken, was it was it Saucerful of Secrets that we were talking about? The connection to um, Sergeant Pepper's, or was it the first album? I forget which one. Um, oh, because I the, can't remember the, last the week. First album, but. yeah. I pointed out the White Album, but I, but I kind of blew off the, uh, the 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 timeline of progressive rock. But most notably during this period is that um, Abbey Road actually comes out prior to this. So the, it wasn't the White Album. And then Umaguma. I mean, they were a year apart, but 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 the Beatles stayed very productive. And in, in in September of of '69, they released Abbey Road. So the just fascinating to me because I I absolutely love Abbey Road. And it's a very pop. It's a very singable album. And then and then you know Pink Floyd is saying no, fuck all that. <laughs> yeah. So, it, but it just it's interesting, right? When Tom's drawing these parallels to to something and you know i would have i i would never have been able to guess which came first star trek or 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 umaguma so I, I just find that to be interesting the other aspect of this you know as we as we kind of go through and i you know i i have this feeling that we're we're not maybe going to cover this in a in a true linear fashion but you know at some point as you're listening to this, you wind up in several species of small furry animals where Roger Waters is, is having just a grand old time um, doing whatever it is that, that Roger is doing. And, and I want to say that, and we'll, we'll at some point we'll have to have him on, but, but I, I, I want to say this is the kind of, of we'll call it experimental stuff that seems to tickle Joe Cass's funny bone so much. Um, so I'm, I'm curious to kind of get his take 
on this because if anyone I think is going to jam on on several species of small furry animals, it's going to be Joe Cass. Um, but I will say that I do positively enjoy at the very end of that track um, when when Roger lapses into muttering in his strange Scottish accent that he has um, that really speaks ultimately to the schoolmasters in, in the wall, I think it, it's, it sort of does presage that a little bit. So that, that does entertain me on a completely irrational level. So it, it's art rock and it's good. I'm so fascinated with this. I, I have to do this with, with this timeline of progressive rock, but would you believe, I mean, 1969 is an amazing, amazing year. I know we've said this before, and the difference between the Americans and the Brits are crazy <laughs> um, because, because, you know, we, Genesis is so square when they release from Genesis to Revelation because it's about the Bible. They're trying to be the Bee Gees and they're not. And I don't know what's going on. And we, we had that whole episode. But then you compare that to like the Mothers of Invention, Uncle Meat, or um, later that year, Frank Zappa you know, does uh, 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 Hot Rats right before Umaguma, like 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 15 days before Umaguma. You've got Frank Zappa doing Hot Rats, which is really groovy with a lot of jamming and a lot of improvisation. Um, but then, but then around that very same day, King Crimson released In the Court of the Crimson King, which is very pompous British clog. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So, so we, we, on the American side, if you look at what's going on during this period, Jefferson Airplane is really groovy. And Genesis is square. And Chicago is groovy. Uh, and well, the who kind of fits in between the two when they do Tommy. Because there's a little bit of feel and groove in there, and it's, it's it's a little you know sluttier than the other stuff. It's a little more street cred than the other stuff. Um, and then and then you know it, it's so weird how Pink Floyd fits into all of this. You, you could say that they're the Brits trying to be a bit more like the Americans. And then in July of '69, Yes releases the Yes album, which is totally in its own camp altogether. It's such an interesting time. It's such a powerful year. I, I, I think we've said in other episodes, if we could go back to any time, it would probably be this period. Yeah. It's interesting. One of the things, or one of, I guess, maybe many things, reading Nick Mason's book, and, and, and I'm getting better, like I'm actually ahead of the story now, which I've always been behind the story, but... There are two things that have sort of come up in our conversation tonight that don't seem to enter into Nick's telling of the tale. And those two things are drug use and musical influences. I don't recall. Now, granted, I've had a lot going on at work and, you know, my retention of facts from from Nick's book is perhaps tenuous at best, but I really don't recall, with the exception of that one story where he talks about them seeing cream from the audience as paying members, I don't recall them really talking a lot about things that influenced them as a band, which is kind of interesting because that that normally comes out sort of naturally in the story. 
But oh well, well, well. During this period, they they opened for um, Hendrix, and there was a period where Gilmore was ferrying around Hendrix in his car. So we we, we know that they were a bit fascinated with Jimmy, and, and and I guess the Nice was on that tour. Yeah, and 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 they are clearly trying to emulate the success and some of the creativity of the, the Beatles. And maybe I'll, I'll go out on a limb, but maybe I can take your two points, the influences and the drug use and combine them into one. There's a story where Paul McCartney enters one of the studios. I think it's, I don't know if it's during the recording of Sid Solo stuff or it was during Piper, but Paul McCartney enters their room and passes around a joint. And that was one of the few times that Roger Waters would puff up. The, 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 the way the, the Comfortably Numb book puts it is that um, Roger knew how to, how, to, how to play the game. So, so, so in, in the presence <laughs> of his idol, Paul McCartney, is like, okay, I'll have a joint. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and there, that's, if, if that's true, so there's, there's a very funny bookend to that in the tale of perhaps Nepworth, one of these huge festival shows in the 90s, where there apparently was some wrangling between Gilmore's Floyd and Paul McCartney in the form of, of their respective managers over who got to play last at that show. And um, so it's, it's funny that, you know, here again, you've got this, this bookend to late model Pink Floyd. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They're 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 an abrasive bunch, and they <laughs> and they, well, well, they admit that even even from each other. Like the one story is that when they would have these dinners and whatnot, it, it would be the Floyd, the four of them grouped really closely together, and maybe some of their crew or what, and 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 anyone who wasn't like in the circle was banished towards the ends. They were very clicky, apparently. Um, even went out with uh, large bunches of people. Yeah, I, and they would turn on each other. Uh, they would say that Roger would turn on everyone eventually, and he admitted that it was in his nature. And heaven forbid they turn on their idol, Paul McCartney. Maybe that's a, <laughs> maybe that's well, a thing. And, and it's funny, because you, you're, you're talking about that. When you look at the, at the wikis for this, um, Gilmore has since stated he was apprehensive about creating a solo work and admits that he, quote, went into a studio and started waffling about tacking bits and pieces together. Um, Gilmore said he, quote, just bullshitted through the piece. He asked Waters to write some lyrics for his compositions, but he refused to do so. <laughs> Same thing as in, yeah, 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 in my, in my book. And, 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 and he, he 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 said he said maybe that was Waters' way of 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 you know grooming Gilmore to be independent or something. But he said in in, in hindsight, yeah, how do you like that? How a, that turned out? It was a bit. <laughs> ha, 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 ha. Yeah, yeah. Oh man. You know what? I'm laughing about this, and we've we've joked on the the text about you know, this and everything else. But but this is going to become part of the story. Roger's personality, you know, drives a lot of the 
the Pink Floyd story from from now until the final cut, right? Because and and, and we talked about this in, in a saucer full of secrets. You know, Sid had his moment of of bright shining star. And then when he sort of became unable to continue to do that for whatever reason, you know, Roger very quickly, you know, stepped in and filled that role. Nick in his in his book makes a, a fascinating statement. He was talking about when Gilmore joined the band and David had a, a certain presence about him and and was was very adept as we've mentioned before at um you know playing and singing Sid and 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 doing the things that David did. And he quotes someone and I forget who it is it's it's really not important as talking about David and saying something along the lines of, oh my goodness, he's going to take over the band. And Mm -hmm. Nick's reply to that was, I guess he hadn't, hadn't noticed the rather tall bass player behind him. So, you know, that's, it's, it's an interesting part of all of this, but you know, it, that being said, when we talk about, you know, several species, you know, Roger seems to be having a grand old time doing what he's doing. Um, so, you know, I just, it is what it is. I, I do think if we talk about, you know, oddly, you know, one, and, and again, I don't, I don't know, I'm not familiar with it a lot. Um, so there's probably something here that I find objectionable, but there are parts of the Grand Vizier's Garden Party that I, I think almost are more relatable to me than a lot of the stuff on here, which is kind of strange, but. Hmm. Okay. Just sort of going off on a different topic. Did anyone else catch a uh, on careful with that axe? I swear it, it's. I, I know you guys are gonna kill me for this, but um, rhythmically there are some moments that I can see that Tool may have been influenced by this song um, because there are some. There's like a Middle Eastern sort of instrument over a tribal beat, and I right. know, it just it may be that just a, a weird flute sound that that makes it sound middle eastern or whatever but there's definitely something along the lines of a a middle eastern influence over a tribal beat over that song beginning of that song i would love to know if any of the the guys in tool uh, were were influenced by this album because there's i i just hear the beginning of a tool song <laughs> so I don't well, know. both both Eugene and set the controls. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. I would believe that. Yep. Oh, yeah. Let, let, let's just just blow out the rest of this album. So so we're not we're not going to beat it to death because uh, it's in the eye of the beholder, and folks just have to listen to it and absorb it themselves. We we did pretty well with the live sections, and Sisyphus clearly uh, made an impact on both of us. Tom, I kind of skipped over. The whole Grandchester Meadows thing, the whole uh, waters part, um, it was a little bit quaint, a little bit kinks, um, very 
soundtrack oriented, the way he brings in the nature sounds. Uh, and I gravitated more towards the narrow way with Gilmore. Are you guys on board with that? Did you latch on to the the substance with Gilmore? Yeah, I mean, maybe more so. I, yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, also, um, in keeping with my theme, where Rolling Stone panned the band for being very uh, diatonic, Gilmore goes out of his way on the grungier parts of the narrow way to to really throw in some fantastically a- a- melodic but atonal uh, guitar intervals. Um, and uh, then he ends very melodically in the piece. So I like the last movement quite a lot. And then uh, my brain is just kind of on the fritz with the Mason material. But Joe, I'm glad that you dove into it. Yeah, there's just something about when I get there, it's like, okay. I, and I, I can't explain it. And like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm really not in a position to, to talk about this like I am a lot of the other things. It's not that I haven't tried. Everyone knows that I'm, I'm willing to put in a lot of effort for, for these, these records. But, you know, this one I've had trouble with. And I just, I wanted to, I really just wanted to move on to and through Adam Hart Mother and get to metal. That's, that was my goal in life. And so, like I said, I just, I, I've had some, some difficulty with this, but. Hmm. No doubt. No doubt. Tom, how'd you do with the end of the album? Well, I, I don't know if this constitutes the end of the album, but with Grandchester Meadows, I'd be interested to, I, I didn't get as far as to go through the lyrics uh, in, in any of this, but I, I did notice from a sound design perspective you start out with birds, you end with bees, and the bees get squashed. Uh, <laughs> the fly so swatter. I'm wondering with the fly swatter. So I'm wondering if you know, if you if if you were saying this song was about the birds and the bees, and something went awry because the bees are now um, on the on the end of a fly swatter. I might have to go back later on and 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 see if I'm reading into this if I'm completely off base or if there was something to that. At first, I think that birds are put in just as a sort of a gimmick, um, just to sort of, I don't know, maybe he was like sort of first learning about, you know, sound design stuff and he thought, oh, I'll put some birds in. But maybe there's something more to it and I would like to sort of uh, look into that to see, it would be interesting to find out if he was using the sound design aspects in a more profound way rather than a gimmicky way. And I definitely want to look at that a little bit later and, and see what I come up with because I'm hoping it's the latter. I'm hoping it was done in a profound way because... It, it makes it more interesting if it has. Yeah, yeah. So... Um, you know uh, but as far as you know species of small furry animals this was I mean a sound designer's sort of wet dream in a way because there's like uh, animals that are being used as percussive instruments and they're you're sort of creating this chaotic abrasiveness 
around animals and around the percussion that these animals are making. So I was getting a lot out of this. And I tend to think that it was the beginning of their journey. So I, I don't, um, you know, put it too high on a pedestal. But again, it's the beginning of this for them. So I, I was very happy to hear a song like this and to, and to see that this is what could be done when sounds are incorporated into a piece of music and you're, you're, you're using something like that as a piece of percussion and you're, you're creating a, uh, a certain feeling based on that. So, um, you know, Species of Small for Animals is, has my two thumbs up for that. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Joe. <laughs> No, I, I, I'm I'm so glad that that you're you're that anybody like this album. <laughs> <laughs> I, oh. I mean, do do we have to do we have to quote myself from a few days ago? <laughs> Just, uh, I love it when we do this. All right, yeah, read the incriminating evidence. So on February sixth, I I said what. WTF is going on with Omagoma. This makes open your eyes seem like close to the edge. That was <laughs> that was my first salvo. Wow. Okay, I hadn't realized Omagoma was a quote let everyone have their own track setup makes fragile seem much less innovative now. Um, then I suggested that we do Omagoma and Adam Hart mother together in about 30 minutes and just be done. <laughs> and then finally, um, ah, here it is, and it was Thursday, Tom. To quote myself, I'm just going to say it. Omagoma is a terrible, pointless pile of complete and utter shit. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so, so that's 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 where I was last Thursday. <laughs> Oh my! I've progressed a little bit since then. <laughs> I should hope so. <laughs> but I was I was struggling at that point. I was I was really struggling. <laughs> well, luckily, I guess I don't know. A few hundred thousand Brits and Americans didn't feel that way, and they they put their hard-earned money into it. They did so. There you go. Wow. And the Netherlands. And the and Netherlands. Germany. Yeah, and France. Yeah, continental Europe has always been very good to Prague. Yes, yes. It, uh, you know, gave gave Genesis their start. So, you know, this is this is it. I find this to be interesting, right? Because you know, here we are, our quote unquote fourth Pink Floyd album. So you start out with you know coming out of the gate with the magic of Sid Barrett on Piper. Then Sid has his troubles, and you know you bring David in for half of Saucerful, and Roger starts to develop songwriting skills. But in a lot of ways, it you know Saucerful is is really Piper Part Two. It, it's 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 a it's a s seamless transition. It's very 
obvious how they're related to each other. Then you go into more where, you know, they're they're now making music pointedly tied to a very depressing movie about heroin addiction. But it, it at the same time, it's kind of liberating and, and it, it shows them sort of taking some musical steps. And now you you sort of take that experimentation maybe out past the boundaries a little bit. And then I, you know, just kind of looking ahead, because we all know I like to create these, these narratives in, in looking at a band's evolution. If, if Umagoma pushes past the boundaries, then Adam Hart mother starts to bring it back in. And by the time they reach metal, they, they, it's almost like they've, they've found their balance point, which ultimately will lead us through Obscured by Clouds into um, Dark Side and, and Away We Go. So, you know, I, I I certainly see the value here and and much in the way that we finally talked about in Abacab, I can at least respect what they were doing. It just, you know, it's not my cup of tea. So, wow. I, I, I would much rather listen to more than this. Well, Again, I mean, you're talking to somebody who listens to the Planet of the Apes soundtrack. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, Jerry Goldsmith is, um, is is put on a pedal. So, And, and that's, you know, that I, I love, I really do, honestly, Tom. And I was, I was so happy when you sort of came back at me when I, when I made that, that sort of, you know, just crazy statement. Um, be, because it's, it's. You know, this is the beauty of of not only the palaver, but of talking about, you know, these bands and these albums as well. There's there's always a different way to to take these things in. And there's someone who is going to defend any album, you know, and, and that's spectacular. And, and I love that. That is honestly the best thing about what we do and why we do it and about the music that we cover. So I was I was thrilled beyond description when when you came to the defense of Omegoma, Tom. It's fun stuff. Yeah, I mean it, it it's great that um yeah. I, I wish we disagreed more often, uh, actually. <laughs> I, I wish that the problem is we most of the time we're agreeing on so much stuff. But uh no, I mean it, you're right. It, it is part of the beauty of, of of doing this. So, well, let's let's get Paul in here. He 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 did text to us. He said, um, "Umagoma is essential, but not entertaining, and surprisingly effective at keeping my personal demons at bay." It should go without saying. I skipped over the live stuff. So I, I, clearly we, we, we kind of liked the live stuff. We made the reference to Tool. We kind of, you know, said that it was more fleshed out than the previous studio stuff. But here's Paul skipping it over. So he, he disagrees. I, I think Paul skips live stuff just as a matter of course. I, I think that's just his basic principle of life. Oh, well, damn him. That's how we ended up with this no live albums on the Palaver thing. <laughs> Because we know we we had actually agreed when we did Genesis that some of their live albums were better than the studio albums, and we'd break the rule, and we, we we never we never quite got there. Yeah, that's true. And I thought we were going to do at least one of Rush's like Exit Stage Left or Show of Hands. We were supposed to. 
Uh, you know, it's there. There's there's a lot to talk about, and with any luck, <laughs> we'll be doing this a decade from now, and we'll cover all of the Rush live albums, at least up until the point where they get really, really not great. What part is that? Okay. What are we talking about? <laughs> I, I don't I, I don't want to I don't want to say anything disparaging for fear of, of turning Mark Anthony K against us. <laughs> oh boy! <laughs> oh goodness gracious! All right. Well, I, I mean, I'm 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 pretty much satisfied with covering Omagoma at this point. Do you guys have any closing thoughts from from your perspective, Tom? I think you know you probably summed it up beautifully. But you know, hey, what else you guys got? Uh, I thought this was a lot of fun, and I thought, um, yeah, I think this is a very important album in the course of Pink Floyd's career, and yeah, I can definitely see why it's not one of the more more popular ones. But um, uh, I mean, these guys think visually as as well as as well as with you know notes from their instruments, and um, this I think is the the one of the beginning pieces of that puzzle but it's a it's it's fun kenny g oh thinking visually there is a wonderful description of storm thurkerson uh painting his room in uh the flat where he lived orange and red and they all admitted it was dreadful but it was different So Storm goes on to become hypnosis. And uh, I think uh, I, I want to say this was this album cover is credited with hypnosis. Um, I, I think I think Storm was credited with with uh, we'll have to go back and look at that. Well, in fact, I've got I've got more right here. Um, I don't know if the album is credited to Storm or hypnosis at that point. Yeah, but these guys do. I, I'm I'm glad that you said that. I mean, um, Tom, we we know they were educated as architects, and 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 they do take design into consideration. A little tangent. Uh, my book is going off into the uh, stratification or the polarization of the band, where you have two musicians, Wright and Gilmore. And to architects, Waters and Mason. Now, you know, maybe that's actually not too crazy because you do get rhythm section being split with the melodic section, a lot of bands. But but they but they really did early on start to form this polarity with kind of the infrastructure guys and then the fancy fruity musician guys on top. That's funny. <laughs> Fancy fruity musicians. I like it. So the the more cover is credited to hypnosis. Indeed. And it was interesting. They, they, they speculated that Sid had scrawled the graffiti that became the name hypnosis. And it was something on the lines of um, um, hip... Oh, I mean, clearly hip prognosis or, 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 you know, hypnotism. And there are lots of connotations, lots of different ways that it could go. Um, And they weren't sure exactly 
where Storm got it from, but they but they thought it was graffiti from Sid. Okay, and and apparently I've I've completely just lost my mind because a saucer full of secrets is also credited to hypnosis. So so Storm Thurgerson became hypnosis almost from the inception. Oh, brilliant, brilliant. For some reason, I thought a saucer full of secrets was credited to just Storm, but it is credited to hypnosis. Okay, so so they're so they're back on track in that regard, and they're also back on track recording in Abbey Road. They, for whatever reason, they were allowed to go to Abbey Road after they were booted out for the more stuff. Yep. So they're, they're 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 and they're making money. So 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 all all, all roads lead to Pompeii. Awesome. Okay. All right. So, gentlemen, uh, I guess next time we can we can talk about the influence of further film work that will result ultimately in Adam Hart Mother, and we will go on from there as we discussed. So, I certainly appreciate you, gentlemen, taking the time here this evening to talk Umaguma and help me to have a a more rounded understanding of this record. So, thank you very much, guys. Thank you. All right. Cheerio. That was a fun one. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Progressive Palaver. As always, we've enjoyed sharing the conversation with you and look forward to your thoughts, questions, comments, and feedback. You can reach us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. We are at Prague Paula on all of those or search for Progressive Palaver. You're welcome to email us. Our email address is progpala at gmail.com. Progressive Palaver is available for subscription and download on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or presumably wherever you find your podcast. And we are, as always, hosted on SoundCloud. So until next time, thanks for listening. Yeah, just hit record, man. If I think about it too much, I'll suck. All right.